Good to be here again sharing God's Word with you. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, turn to chapter 12 as we continue our, our look at the end times in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 12, we'll read from verse 1 to 6 this morning. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold a great dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his head. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and it cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a, had a place prepared of God, that they, sh that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your precious word, and we thank you that you've given it to us, Lord, that we may look into it to learn of you and to learn of ourselves. And Lord, we thank you for revelation in particular that you have told us the end from the beginning because you are a God who knows all things. Lord, I pray that your spirit would open our eyes this morning, that we may live lives that are glorifying to you, that we may take in your word, that our lives might might continue to be changed, our minds uh, would think the way you think, and that our lives would give Jesus the glory. In his precious name I pray. Amen. Last week we concluded chapter 11, and we spoke about in chapter 11 that the temple of God in heaven had been opened, if you remember, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings, and an earthquake and great hail. We went into that, and I I explained to you what I believed about that and how it, how it all fitted in uh, with, the, with the seven uh, seals, the seven trumpets and the seven vials that we haven't uh, gone into just yet. And the focus of this particular chapter, or, or sorry, of chapter 11, was uh, the tribulation period, particularly the last three and a half years of that, of that period. Now as we go into uh, chapter 12, it's almost like God now brings us back a long way in the past and has a sweeping sort of story with broad themes that lead us into the tribulation period and basically tell us how we more or less got there. In chapter 11, the focus was the battle or the conflict between the beast and the two witnesses who God had put in Jerusalem to preach the gospel. In, uh, in chapter 12, um, we're given the main people, or the main characters in this eternal story. Um, and we're going to look at, or start looking at those characters uh, today. We're not going to go through the whole chapter, obviously, but uh, we're going to start looking at those characters, who they are, how they relate to each other, and also what Scripture has to say about them and, their, and how they end up. Do you remember what I told you when we first started Revelation? What did I say was the key to Revelation? Do you remember? Anyone remember? I said, in order to understand Revelation properly, we need to understand Israel. 
that Israel was a part of it and the Jews are, are the, a focus in this book. Um, a lot of different denominations have a problem with that because according to their theology, Israel is done away with and the church has taken all of Israel's promises, all the promises that God made to Israel that haven't been fulfilled, um, God takes those. Oh, sorry, the church takes those. And the church becomes a symbolic sort of Israel and God fulfills those promises in a symbolic way. For instance, God has promised them the land and a much bigger land than what they have at the moment and that hasn't been fulfilled as such. But they, many denominations will spiritualize that and make that a spiritual blessing rather than an actual fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham nonetheless. So we want to allow scripture to interpret scripture. We want to, we want to see what God's word says about it. And if it's sometimes hard to understand, if God's word says something and we find it hard to understand, we're going to not try and force a round peg into a square hole um, simply because it may not fit our finite minds or we may find it difficult to sort of put everything together. But in this particular chapter, we'll see the, the main themes of what's happening and why we reach a place called the tribulation period. Revelation uh, chapter 12, verse 1 to 6. The introduction okay, of this chapter at this particular point has, like I've said, introduced a great amount of controversy between the, the different churches and different theologians. Many fall um, at this particular point into a trap of false doctrine. There's a place in this uh, passage in the, uh, in the very first verse that says that there appeared a great wonder in heaven. And a wonder is a sign, an unusual event, worthy of special notice. And, and John is bringing our attention to this specific thing as something very, very unusual and very, very special. Something very special is going on. So the vision that John sees here is in the past as well as in the future. So you need to keep that in mind. It's not just limited to that revelation period. It goes back and forward all the way to the end. So we'll, uh, we'll have a look at who these main characters are now. Verses 1 and 2. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she being with child cries, travailing in birth, and pain to be delivered. Okay. Some have interpreted this individual, this woman, to be the Virgin Mary, to be the Mother Church. Um, some female cult leaders have interpreted it to be themselves, even. And some, uh, some women preachers have also managed to put themselves in that particular uh, position. Nice. Who's her true identity? Turn back with me to Genesis. Let's go right back to the beginning again. Genesis chapter 37, verse 9 to 11. Now, before we read that, these particular verses, just to give you a bit of background, most of us are familiar with Joseph. God would give him visions in dreams to, that he would be able to interpret in this particular case, he was a young boy and he has a dream and he is 
uh, foolish enough to tell his brothers a dream. Now, he says, And he dreamed yet another dream and told it to his brethren, which were his brothers, and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? And his brethren envied him, but his father observed the same. Now, most of us are aware also what happened to Joseph soon after these dreams. His brothers got rid of him. And that's another story in itself. But you'll, you'll notice here that Joseph says that he dreamed a dream and the sun and the moon and how many stars? Eleven stars bowed down to him. Now how many brothers did he have? Eleven. He had eleven, 11 uh, stars. So his father and his brothers, it would seem, had little problem interpreting what he was telling them. Correct? They knew what the eleven stars were. They knew that it was them and that he had dreamed that they would be bowing down to him and that the sun and the moon... Now, his father wasn't part of the eleven, but his father rebuked him and said, oh, Am I to bow down to you? And is your mother to bow down to you? So the imagery here is that, that he was, his father was, the sun and his mother the moon. Or he's the other way around. Okay? So that's the picture we're getting. Now, who do they represent? Who was his father? Right, Jacob. Jacob was the one who had the 12 sons. Okay? And Jacob was the one who, and his 12 sons were to be the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? So the picture we have here is of Israel. And this links very nicely with our description of the woman here. And there appeared in verse 1 in Revelation a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and, her, and upon her head a crown of 12 stars, the, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 46 verse 13. The fact that this woman is clothed with the sun presents her in a very glorious way, doesn't it not? If you were to say that, that you were clothed with the sun, you'd be shining, you'd be bright, you'd be altogether glorious. And I think this is exactly the image that God is giving to John. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 13, it says, I bring near my righteousness, it shall not be far off. And my salvation shall not tarry, and I will place salvation in Zion, for Israel is my glory. God is glorified, he says in this particular verse, through Israel. And God will reveal himself to the world. And this was the plan from the beginning, that God would glorify himself through Israel. Very similarly to the way that we are meant to be glorifying God in our lives. You see, the Christian is meant to, once they're inhabited by the, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit then starts working inside us. And God's Word works on our minds and the way we think. And the way we live our lives becomes more and more like who? Like Jesus. 
And as we live more and more like Jesus, guess who gets the glory? He does. So this is exactly the purpose for which God chose Israel, that Israel would glorify him and that through Israel, the Messiah would come and God would ultimately be glorified because God has shown himself to be loving and kind and patient and and full of grace and everything else that we call good about God. So the Son... God has allowed Israel to become glorified because of the relationship that he has with her. And it's very similar to the way, once again, the church is. We expect one day to be, the word is, glorified. Is that right? Anyone have a problem with that? Does anyone have a problem with being glorified one day? Now, being glorified doesn't mean that we're going to be worshipped. Being glorified simply means that the righteousness of God in us will shine and God will receive that glory. And it's a bit like a mirror shining a huge light on on a a, a large number of mirrors and they're all shining. Well, they're not shining of their own own, uh, light, are they? But they're simply reflecting that light. And that's what God simply called us to be and that's what Israel is. Turn to Genesis chapter 13, verse 14. As the sun is an image of the glory of Israel, standing on the moon is a sign of her dominion, is a sign of her strength. Genesis 13, 14 says, And the Lord said unto Abram, After that lot was separated from him, lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art northward, and southward, and eastward, and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. You see, Israel at the moment, has that, has that been fulfilled? There is a place called Israel, isn't there? There's a, there's a country called Israel. It's an independent nation, but it doesn't fill this particular promise. That as far as the eye can see, north, south, east and west, that it would be theirs. The promise that God made to Israel was for a much larger piece of land, which has never really been realised. But God always keeps his promises. Israel will ultimately have dominion. God's been promised to them. They haven't up till now. They've been beaten and battered. They've been persecuted. They've gone through all types of, of persecution in this world from the very beginning. We'll have a look at that a bit, a bit later on. But ultimately, God will give them the, their portion. God will give the promise to them that he, that he gave them from the beginning. This woman also has a crown. Now, what does crown normally stand for? Ruling. A crown... A crown is for, is, for, is for rulership. And Israel will rule in this world. God promised them that they would have dominion in the world. And that promise, you'll notice that the stars are above the head, above the crown. So the promise to Israel is that they will not only be restored, but their glory, they will be glorified 
through God. And God will be glorified through them. Through those 12 brothers who, who started a journey. Uh, sorry, it was Abraham who started the journey, then Isaac, and then Jacob, then the 12 brothers. And, and you'll, you will notice that every step of the way there was problems. There were problems, weren't there? Right from the very beginning. Right from the time when, when God called out Abraham, there were problems and things seemed to go wrong from the beginning. Not always because of their mistakes, not always because of their, of their, of their own uh, choices, but it would seem that there's another character in play here who would seek to stop whatever God was trying to do. But 12 brothers, who comes from a big family here? How many names? Six brothers. Joyce? Nine. Four brothers. Well, I had an interesting encounter the other week. Uh, last week, uh, I, we, we'd, got, we'd been given the wrong key to the church, and I had to go back and get the key at the place uh, where, we normally, where it's normally kept, and there's a lady called Raylene there who manages the keys. And uh, when I knocked on the front door, she said, oh, we've given you the wrong key. And I said, well, unfortunately, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a, uh, bit of a mix-up. It wasn't her fault. And she started talking to me about where she'd been that day and you know, what she was doing and what they were planning. And we got in this conversation. And she said, oh, you know, my, uh, my uncle, my father comes from a family of 19. <laughs> my jaw dropped about there because I can't imagine a family of 19. <laughs> 19. And she said when they get together, it's quite a reunion. They have, but many of them have, have passed away now. But there are, I think, 11 or 12 brothers at that particular stage, and they were scattered all over Australia. And I thought, look at that. And, and it reminded me of the 12, the 12 brothers that we see here, because it's quite difficult to imagine 12 boys, isn't it? 12 boys. You mothers out there would love 12 boys running around. And these are quite headstrong, these, uh, these boys. It, it, it shows up later on how, how headstrong they actually are. They managed to try to get rid of one of their brothers who <laughs> was coming, who was having dreams and didn't quite fit the rest of the mould. But this is a story about Israel. Right? And Israel is an incredible story when you, look at, when you look at its history and what it's been through. And the amazing thing is I've got this quote uh, from, the, from the computer in, made in 1998 by a fellow called Charles Crothamer. And, and he says this, um, Israel is the very embodiment of Jewish continuity. Okay? It is the only nation on earth that inhabits the same land, bears the same name, speaks the same language and worships the same God that it did 3,000 years ago. There's no other nation that, that fits all those criteria. Many nations, you might think, all right, what about Egypt? Egypt doesn't worship the same gods. But Israel is the only nation that inhabits the same land, bears the same name, speaks the same language, and worships the same God that it did 3,000 years ago. He says, you dig the soil and you find pottery from Davidic times, coins from Bar Kokhba, and 2,000-year-old scrolls written in a script remarkably like the one that today advertises ice cream at the, at the candy store. Isn't it an amazing thing? Israel is indeed a unique people. But what makes her unique oftentimes is the pain that she's been through, what she's been through in the past. She has suffered 
like virtually no other nation has suffered. Look at the pain that she goes through because the story is not only of this, of this, uh, this glorified woman. And you'll notice that, that the picture of her is glorification, okay? Clothed with the sun, standing on the moon, uh, you know, with a crown on her head with, with 12 stars. But there's pain with it now. We're going to look at the, the pain that's associated with her. But once again, God sees from the beginning what's going to happen at the end. To God, the future is already history. Okay? The story of Israel is not a pretty picture, most of you would already know. Chosen by the Lord to be his witnesses on the earth, God had given his, his very commandments to them, the, his own words, so that they could then share those words with the rest of the world. That was their job, to teach the world about the one true God. They had been through so much. God had led them out of Egypt while they were under captivity through Moses. But Israel, after that, even struggled time after time after time simply to remain faithful to God. Her simple job was to be faithful and to share with the world the fact that there is only one God and what he was like. Israel was then taken into captivity by the Babylonians. They are dispersed into all the world through the Persians. And they go through so much trial. And I think part of their trials, part of their tribulation, and the reason they went through so much pain was simply because God had called them to a job. And there was someone who was vehemently opposed to them fulfilling their job description. He would do everything in his power to make sure that they would not fulfill what they had been called to do. Turn to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. We'll look at the very beginnings of that calling so we understand it. Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. That is the purpose. God will be glorified through them. God will protect them as his own beloved. And through that blessing that they were meant to be, they found themselves more often than not in the unenviable position because of their own choices that they were far from the job they were meant to be doing. They were far from the God who had saved them, who had called out Abraham, their father. They were far from him. They had gone chasing after other gods and failed in their duties. But every time that they cried out, every time that Israel cried out to God, what did he do? Did he say, I don't want to hear from you anymore? No, he came in and rescued them. One of the most beautiful examples of that was when they were under captivity to the Egyptians. And in Exodus, they need to turn there, but Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 says, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters 
for I know their sorrows. Even though they were not in a place they were meant to be, God heard their cries. And that happens, that's a, that's a common thread throughout the Old Testament. Yeah, God's a very gracious God. He's very patient. He's very kind. And sometimes we find ourselves in places that we don't want to be. But because of some bad choices that we've made, we find ourselves in that place. And we struggle sometimes to understand why we're there. And 99.99999% and of the time, it's because of bad choices we've made. And it's only because we don't take stock. Remember I spoke to you a little while ago about being the watchman? Sometimes we're not very good watchers. Brother John's had a, uh, had a problem with his eyesight because of his glaucoma, is it? Because of the, uh, sorry? Diabetes. Because of the diabetes. Diabetes can affect your eyesight and it can deteriorate and get worse and worse and worse. But they were able to do some incredible surgery on him with a laser. He was saying, he was telling me before how amazing he finds it that with, a, with light, you can actually fix up something like that. Where he was seeing through a bubble, he now sees better than he saw before. The problem with, with a lot of Christians is that we don't see very well. Uh, we're kids that are growing up that aren't focused properly on the spiritual things. We've we become so focused to the things of the world that we lose the vision that we have for the spiritual. And God calls us to be watchmen and we can't be watchmen because half the time we're, we're looking at our own feet or, or looking at things that we're not meant to be looking at and, and we get caught out uh, time after time. You see, this is where Israel found themselves time after time. God had called them to be the watchmen. God had called them to stay on alert God had called them to, to, to share his wonderful truths and who he was with the world. The problem was they let the world infiltrate them. And instead of being on the watch and seeing what was happening, before too long, within a few generations of them sort of going back to God, they would find themselves back in the same place they were again, not learning the same lessons, not learning the simple lessons from before. How different are we? Hands up who learns something always the first time. <laughs> we don't. We don't. We find ourselves, we find ourselves having to repeat more often than not the same lessons over and over and over again because we just didn't get it the first time. So God's got to reteach us and reteach us and reteach us, and God will. We don't go to the next level. You know how public schools today, sometimes they let the kids go up you know, to the next level without really learning what they're meant to be learning in the previous years and they just put them forward because they've got to turn them out otherwise, you know, where are these kids going to be stuck? God doesn't do that with us. God loves us enough to not let us go to the next level, to, to not let us take the next level of responsibility if we haven't covered the first one. He will not burden us more than we can bear and if we haven't learned grade 2 yet he won't promote us to grade 3 so we find ourselves often struggling with you know simple 3 R's 
the simple three R's of Christianity. I won't tell you what those are. You can work them out yourself. It's not reading, writing, arithmetic. But there are basics that the Christian needs to learn as they're growing up. And oftentimes we get distracted from our basic tasks, which will then strengthen us and help us to understand the more important things later on. And Paul had the same uh, criticism of the Corinthians. You see, we know, and then the other churches too. He says, when you, you know, when you should have been teachers by now, when you should have been strong enough and mature enough to be leading the other people and showing them this is how you need to be living, this is the type of lifestyle that God would want you to, to have, watch me. Instead, they were still like babies. They were still having to, Paul says, re-go over the simple principles over and over and over again because they didn't grasp them. They were too busy playing around in the classroom, distracted. And Israel often found herself in that position. You see, everything that happened to Israel is a, is a message to us. That's the beautiful part of this thing too. Everything that happened to Israel is a story about how we are as people. What happened to them as a nation happens to most people all the time, especially Christians. And we need to be learning from their mistakes. I heard it once said that, Nave, you're a, you're, a, um, you're a smart person, I think it is, if you learn from your mistakes. But you're really smart if you can learn from someone else's mistakes. That means you won't have to go through them. So God has given us a book which has recorded all the problems that they went through and he said to us, be smart, be wise, learn from their mistakes so we don't go through the same things and we can grow into the maturity that God wants us to, to have. Now, Israel went through a lot of pain because of that immaturity, a lot of pain. They were constantly sidetracked and diverted from their job seduced by other gods and other people. She's been through a lot of pain. She went through a lot of pain in biblical times and she's still going through pain today. Think about it. The Holocaust in the Second World War was a shining example of that. She's still going through pain. Why does the world hate Israel so much? Why? Does the world have any, have any hatred for, for other groups of people? Is there any reason why, why you know, uh, other groups of people would be singled out? The Spanish, the Italians, the Greeks? I can't think of, you know, the Scottish. There's no other, there is no other nationality, no other groups of people in the world that have had the same sort of persecution and the same hatred focused on them for such a long period of time. I mean, even during the, the Middle Ages and Dark Ages, when the Christian church was in power over there in Europe, guess who was the focus of their hatred too? The Jews. Why? They had every type of slanderous uh, thing brought against them. It's because there's someone in the background working. There is someone in the background working to seek to destroy her because in destroying her... God cannot fulfill his promises. And the Holocaust and the Second World War is an example of that. If he can destroy Israel, he will destroy the, the very God or the thought of the God who called her to be his wife. Now, during the tribulation, this is going to grow and intensify again. 
they're going to go through this thing called the time of Jacob's trouble. All the stuff they've been through hasn't been called the trouble at all. <laughs> they're going to go through a time of trouble. And this is the story of this particular passage. Turn to Isaiah chapter 66, verse 7. Most of you are aware that Israel has not been a nation, has not had a plot of land to live on for how, for how long, roughly? About 2,000 years. They've lived there while the Romans were there and, and they, they were occupied for most of the time. But in 1948, Israel managed to put a stick in the ground with a flag and say, this is our land and we are independent again. And look at, look at Isaiah chapter 66, verse 7. It says, before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. Who hath heard such a thing? Who have seen such, a, such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or, or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Now, that's exactly what happened to Israel in 1948. She became a, a nation like that overnight. And she didn't go through the pain necessarily to, to do it. You know when the pain came? Straight after. <laughs> she, she became a nation, got her independence, and guess, guess what happened the same day? She was attacked by all these armies at the same time, seeking to destroy her. Israel, everything Israel has done in the past, and even now, has always been through suffering and pain. And this is the image that we get of this particular woman standing on the moon. She's in pain, travailing in pain. She's crying out. And Israel has cried out and has experienced pain. Who is this particular woman travailing for? Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And we'll see the child that she's about to bring forth. Because in the Isaiah passage that we read in uh, chapter 66 it was about becoming a nation in chapter 9 verse 6 about someone else it says for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor the mighty god the everlasting father the prince of peace of the increase of his kingdom and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of david and upon his kingdom to order it to establish it with judgment and with justice, henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The son, and we all know who this passage refers to, the son that this woman is in labour pains for is Jesus himself. Okay? That's why this can't be the church. The church did not give birth to Jesus. Jesus did not come through the church. The church came after it was Israel through whom the Messiah would come. But this woman has not always been faithful, as we've said. Turn to Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1. Though she has had the job to bring forth the Messiah into the world... She hasn't always been the faithful wife. Isaiah 51 says, Thus saith the Lord, 
Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities have you sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. Now who's the mother? God has said that he's been wedded to Israel. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 7. Jeremiah 3, 7 says, And I said after she had done all these things, which weren't good things, by the way, Turn thou unto me, but she returned not. And her treacherous sister, Judah, saw it. And I saw, when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce, yet her treacherous sister, Judah, feared not, but went and played the harlot also. Not the nicest picture you'd get of a wife, is it? A wife who continually leaves, plays the harlot, then wants to come back when she's in trouble and then God takes her back and then she does it again and again. And it's the same thing for Israel and Judah. But the church in the Bible is pictured as a what? As a virgin. A chaste virgin ready to be married. Not, not married yet, but to be married. Whereas in the Old Testament, God's picture of Israel was that he had married her already. So this woman, even though glorified, has been through a lot of struggles and has been through a lot of infidelity. But you know the beautiful thing? You know really good artists, what they can do? A good artist can actually picture exactly what the painting is going to be like. He's not painting haphazardly or they're not, they're not carving or moulding haphazardly and then hoping for something to come out in the end. They know up here exactly what's going to come out, right? They know. Well, they might play around with it a little bit and, and maybe change it a bit here and there, but a good artist will know what he's painting. You know, God is a great artist, not a good artist. God is an infinitely better artist. And the beautiful thing about God is the painting that he started, he already knows exactly how it's going to be. And for God, the end is already in sight. So even though Israel has, has been unfaithful, even though she has been through difficulties and she's been torn and beaten and she's been unfaithful, you know, God sees her already as the glorified, beautiful woman that she is. Because God will glorify himself through her. Now, let's go to the next, the next person, the dragon. Enter the dragon. Verse 9. Let's look at the, uh, the identity of the dragon. And there appeared in verse 3 another wonder in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Okay, who is this, this, uh, this person here? Well, I want you to turn with me. I'm just going to read some passage of scripture to you because we're going to be running out of time this dragon has immense power and the ability to be able to control the world 
Well, Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 says, And again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. The devil offered Jesus the kingdoms of the world. Why? Because the devil was in control of the kingdoms of the world. He could offer them to Jesus because his power is not infinite, but great. The fact that he's a red dragon. Do you remember the, the red horse? What it had to do with? War and killing. Well, it's, Revelation 6, 4 says, And then went out another horse, and it was red. And the power was given him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. The devil has been a murderer from the beginning. Now, when they picture the devil with the red costume, and the, often that's a bit of a caricature, but the red symbolizes the blood that's been shed because of him throughout the history of man. The devil is also vicious in nature. A dragon is a terrible creature to be feared. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. That's the picture we're getting of him. John 8.44 says, When Jesus spoke to the Pharisees, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. He is vicious murderer. The problem is that most of the people in the world have been seduced by his lies. Now, our eyes have been opened. The, the job for us is to keep our eyes open and not be seduced again by him. To be watching out, using God's word, which are wonderful glasses that help us to see perfectly what the spiritual world is about. You'll see that the, script, that the scripture also says that he has seven heads. Well, seven often speaks of completeness, is it not? Okay. Um, complete. Heads. Very wise being. Ezekiel chapter 28 verse 12 says, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. The devil is incredibly smart. Oftentimes people miss or underestimate how intelligent he actually is. I often hear interesting stories about through our Pentecostal uh, uh, brethren uh, who, who like to take the devil head on. And... Um, they like to, uh, to, to run into the battle, into the fray, and thinking that you know, God's given them the power to destroy the devil and to do all types of interesting things and binding up demons and, and all sort of stuff. God doesn't tell us to do that. And oftentimes, these same people who involve themselves in this sort of behaviour find themselves in all types of problems later on. Where they involve themselves with spiritual battles, they often fall flat on their face. And the reason is is that the devil is not a being to be played around with. He is an, an, an immensely powerful, vicious and intelligent being. 
and he's ultimately jealous of us and Israel. Because God has said to the church, the God, let's, let's start with Israel. God has said to the Israel, I'm going to be your husband. And he's made it very public that there's a relationship there that he doesn't have with the angels. There is immense jealousy there. Now, when the church comes along and God is preparing a bride for his son, oh, there's a lot of jealousy there too. If he's a murderer and if he's smart and if he has incredible power, then he's not to be played around with. You don't run headlong into a battle without having your commander and your captain where? In front of you. The other thing a dragon has is ten horns. And it's a nice picture of the power that he has over the kingdoms of this world still. He will be able to control a ten-nation confederacy. He will control them, as he does the kingdoms of this world already. That's why we don't fit in now. And we will never fit in to this world. It's only when Christ returns. And the other thing that he has is seven crowns. Because he is the God of this world. And you'll remember that he was able to, to draw down and to seduce a third of the angels of heaven to follow him in a rebellion against God. And this, the scripture tells us that here. That he was able to do that. To join him in his rebellion. Now, the man-child. That's an interesting term, isn't it? The man-child. It's not very often you hear that sort of combination. Well, Jesus is the son of God. And he is a man as well. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, it says, I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus will indeed return to rule the earth, and he'll rule it with a rod of iron. And when he returns, it won't be as a lamb on a, riding an ass, riding a donkey. He'll come for war. He'll be riding a horse. And horses are symbolic of war. And he will destroy those who oppose God. And he will cast into the lake of fire all the devils and Satan and all those who follow him. This is the child that this woman brings forth into the world. That was her job from the beginning. The, child, the man child is a perfect picture of who Jesus is. And the fact that he's caught up to God before the devil is able to consume him shows us his ascension into heaven. Shows us that he was not corrupted by the devil during his life. He lived the perfect life. Now finally, verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. That's the, um, the time of Jacob's trouble. The remember we said midway through the tribulation period the devil uh, reneges on his promise 
and he goes after Israel and goes after all those who profess the name of Christ because Israel has now at this stage realised that he is false, that, he is, that his promises are false and that he's not to be trusted and they turn to Christ. And that makes him rather angry. And he has to chase them. And God promises to protect them for those three and a half years. God will miraculously preserve his people. Turn to Isaiah chapter 35 verse 1. I'm nearly finished over here. Isaiah 35 verse 1 says, The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. That's a, that's a fantastic passage about how God will come and rescue his people when they are in the desert. And they will, during this time, flee to the wilderness where there'll be a place prepared for them where God will sustain them, look after them during that time. God will protect his wife. Let me finish by reading you a love story. Who likes a good love story? And all the women put up their hands and all the, all the men don't. Okay, that's fine. Isaiah chapter 54. I'm just going to read this. I'm not going to explain it. If you have time, go through it yourself and meditate on some of the things and the, the ideas that it brings forward and some of the, the themes. But this is ultimately a love story. And this is a love letter. Sing, O barren, that, thou didst not, that didst not bear. Break forth into singing. Cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. That's building his tent bigger and bigger, he's saying. All right? For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles, and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded. For thou shalt not be put to shame. For thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood any more. For thy maker is thine husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. The God of the whole earth shall he be called. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth. When thou wast refused, saith thy God, for a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. 
For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. For the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord, that hath mercy on thee. O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest, and not comforted, behold, I will lay thy stones with fair colours, and lay thy, thy foundations with sapphires. And I will make thy windows of agates, and thy gates of carbuncles, and all thy borders of pleasant stones. And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and shall, and shall be the peace of thy children. And great shall be the peace of thy children. In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come near thee. Behold, they shall surely gather together, but not by me. Whosoever shall gather together against thee shall fall for thy sake. Behold, I have created the smith that bloweth the coals in the fire, and that bringeth forth an instrument for his work, and have created the waster to destroy. But no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment shall thou, thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Isn't that an incredible story? Think about Israel. When you think about Israel and you think about what she's been through, how unfaithful she's been, and even now to have rejected the Messiah that she did bring into the world. God promises in the end he will re-establish her. He will build her up again. He will return her to where she truly is supposed to be. He will expand her boundaries. He'll remove all types of oppression from her. He will protect her from all sides. That is a wonderful story of forgiveness and love. And that's who God always shows himself to be. God is a faithful husband. And you know we have a, a wonderful wedding to look forward to. A wedding with his son. And his son is as faithful as the father. And God is very jealous. Yeah, if I was a father and my son gave his life or gave everything he had to win his wife and I was a father waiting for that marriage to happen, how protective would I be of my, my son's future wife? That's us. Think of how jealously God guards us. The ones who have been betrothed to his son. God wants us to be pure. That's why God is preparing a bride for his son. The Holy Spirit is working in us today. That's an incredible love story, is it not? God showed how faithful he was to an unfaithful wife and even in the end, she will be restored. God already sees her as a glorified, beautiful woman. But the church is the bride who's being prepared for his son. I wouldn't want to be the one who gets in the way.
Listen to Jesus' words, and I'm going to finish with these. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that your joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another, as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Friends. Friends, Jesus gave his life for you today. Jesus willingly gave himself so that he could win you as his bride. That's how much he loves you. The wonderful thing about love is that it multiplies. When you love that much, you can't help but love everyone else. Let's spend our time loving God and loving each other. That's what the story's all about, isn't it? Thank you.